We are back. We go now to New York City and our favorite blogger, Tom Burke. Are you there, Tom? Hey, how are you, Doug? We're doing, we're doing well out here. Uh, you've survived the convention? I survived the convention. I had to sleep for like three weeks straight afterwards, but... Uh, well, uh, sounds like you had some now. fun. It was good, you know? I mean, I was, I was virtually there, <laughs> uh, which is almost as good as being there. Well, In we, fact, I think better. We stole right off your website your, your commentary on the Ministry of Truth. Uh, and I stole that from, uh, you know, George Orwell. Well, so. I, I guess you, st- you should steal, steal from the best. Uh, I, it seems to work for me. <laughs> well, let's review some of your headlines since then. Uh, there's some that I think we should comment on. September 9th, 2004. Headline, com. Carrie Wynn will give nation painful itching hemorrhoids, says Cheney. In his speech to the National Association of Wealthy CEOs today, Dick Cheney warned that if John Kerry were elected, everyone would get painful, itching hemorrhoids, and a lot of other bad things. So true. And I, I, I thought that, uh, you know, Cheney's best argument about this would be uh, this country would have a hard time sitting down. <laughs> September 14th article you have we should talk about. Now, apparently you, you, you envision this as a fast-forward. This yes, is a fanciful uh, look ahead at November 3rd election. Exactly. Yeah. And in your view, Jefferson, your, your futuristic dateline, Jefferson City, Missouri, November 3rd, Missouri officials deny that spam or other email voting improprieties played any part in Missouri's election of Viagra as president in <laughs> yesterday's national election. A final tally of the presidential balloting in Missouri showed that online pokerholdem.com ran a close second. I think that if you open up email voting, that, uh, you know, the spammers will win. I think you're right. All right, here's one I like, especially that you've been covering the story of the uh, the CBS News um, uh, debacle. Experts say latest Gallup poll, written on 1972 IBM Selectric typewriter. The latest Gallup poll indicating double-digit leads for Bush in the race for president appears to have been typed on the same IBM Selectric typewriter on which the Killian memos were alleged to have been created. These latest polls, unlike the Killian memos, appear to be authentic, but written more than 30 years ago, said scientist Larry Friholi. So you're, you have your doubts about these polls, too. I, I have my doubts about the polls, but uh, I think that, uh, I don't know, I think that it's just as likely that they were made up 30 years ago as they were made up yesterday. You, you may be right. you give any credence to the possibility that New Jersey could go for Bush? You know, I am having a hard time following that. I have to say, if New Jersey could conceivably go for Bush, then this race is uh, is entirely different than I had pictured it. In fact, the country is. I frankly don't believe it. I don't believe it. I mean, let's face it, these are the same polls that predict that, uh, you know, California is only maybe six points in the carry uh, Right. Harry column, and I find that hard to believe. I think he's got more of a lock on it. Oh, it's more like 10. More I'm, like sure, 10. I, I'm sure of that. I, I would think so. And so. here's a headline just fresh as today's news, quite literally. Bush asks UN to invade Iraq. 
Urgent need for action, he says. President Bush today decried the current situation in Iraq and asked the U.N. to use military force to establish some tiny seed of equilibrium from which freedom may sprout. Bush laid out a plan to mobilize a huge number of U.N. troops to invade and stabilize Iraq. Only an incredibly massive force can bring peace and stability to the area, he said. Believe me, I know. <laughs> it's a fact that was tested. Uh, and uh, what I liked is, is that I, I have Bush also saying, you don't stand on force when you're trying to achieve world peace. <laughs> Emphasis on you, he says. <laughs> and then he goes to a four-star restaurant. Uh, I remember that, uh, you know, World War One was called the war to end all wars. And... Uh, that didn't pan out, and uh, I remember when we in, in in Vietnam. We should remind our our student listeners of this. For a while, we set out to bomb Vietnam to bring about peace, causing some wags to point out at the time that uh, bombing for peace was much like fornicating for chastity. <laughs> you know, well said. Well said. Can't be improved upon thirty years later. Well, I have to tell you, the headlines uh, these days are uh, kind of hard to beat in the satire news front. It's tough for you to one-up them, isn't it? Uh, it's very hard. I was thinking of just running the actual headlines from the newspapers for a while. Uh, uh, Bush pleased with the way I Iraq war is going was, uh, was really... Was that uh, an actual headline you saw? Yeah, that was last... Uh, that was Sunday, I believe it was. He said that he was very pleased with the way things were going in Iraq. Well, and, what's uh, not to like? What's not to like? Uh, They're throwing out flowers. They've established democracy. The infrastructure's back up. The uh, Islamic fundamentalists are under control, and freedom and prosperity and democracy seem to be flourishing everywhere. Well, what I, I actually started writing that one. I said, Bush pleased <laughs> with Iraq, and then the subheadline was, especially likes pipeline bombings. <laughs> Well, Tom Burke, we appreciate uh, the update. Keep up the good work. And uh, I don't know. The headlines are going to be tough to top, but see what you can do. Are you going to get Cat Stevens on? <laughs> we're going to try, but I don't think we're going to get too far. I don't know. He may not. He, he may be so blacklisted in this country that he can't actually come in on a phone line. We'll, we'll, we'll try and test that hypothesis. We're going to try and get Zell Miller to respond uh, to what, what it was that uh, that that. Uh, they won the Cold War with that Kerry doesn't want to use. I was not aware of this weapon system, so we got to find out what that was. I'm sure Congressman Miller can inform the rest of us. All right. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk again soon. All right, Doug. Tom, to be continued. And your website again is? Uh, opinions You Should Have. Okay. Thanks a lot, Doug. That was Tom Burka, blogger. Uh, we recommend his website, tomburka.com, or Opinions You Should Have. Well, we were speaking earlier about uh, joining two fine institutions, uh, NPR stations and KDVS. Let's air a, a segment where we talked to people over at NPR. This aired originally on December 18th, 2003, about the substantial donation that heiress Joan Kroc of McDonald's made to assist the operations of National Public Radio. We are back. Five weeks ago, National Public Radio announced the largest donation in its history, a cash bequest from the will of the late philanthropist Joan Kroc of about $200 million. This bequest, 
from the widow of the founder of the McDonald's fast food chain, shocked and delighted people at National Public Radio's headquarters in Washington. Here to tell us about that remarkable turn of events is someone who had a central role to play in it, Stephanie Bergsma, who is the development director for KPBS-FM in San Diego. Welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you. The news stories that I've read explain that uh, Ms. Kroc had enjoyed listening to NPR through your affiliate and had been a donor previously. Can you tell us a bit how you got involved in working with Joan Kroc? Um, many years ago, when I was doing a capital campaign to raise our existing um, telecommunications center, I was introduced to her by Judith Harris and David Copley. David and his mother are the owners of the Union Tribune here. And at that time, we were hoping that she would make a major gift to the capital campaign. And she made a very small gift at that point. But we continued communicating with her and um, sending her information. And a few years later, when we were in the process of trying to equip the building, David and Judith were telling her about what was happening. And, of course, I was in communication with her. And she made a $100,000 gift to us. And then about a year later, made a $3 million gift to KPBS. Wow. And, of course, we celebrated that. She flew Fred Rogers in and surprised us. <laughs> and Scott Simon was here, and we had a wonderful celebration in our studio and subsequently put up a recognition piece. And so as you come in the, major, the main doors from our lobby into the production facilities, the first thing you see is Joan Kroc in one of her favorite pictures, and it's the Kroc Production Center, KPBS Kroc. Croc Production Center. We named our production center after her. Now, I understand that she'd, uh, she knew that she was ill late in life and, and decided that uh, she was interested in the kind of reporting she'd been getting through your station from, from NPR about, particularly, I guess, uh, the war in Iraq, etc., and that she, I guess, got interested in wanting to do something to help. Well, we had, had an ongoing conversation with her, and in fact, Kevin met her prior to her illness. Mm-hmm. And yes, that's true. She was terribly concerned about the war, and um, I think she understood what we were doing and wanted to help us uh, expand on that and understood the unique quality that we bring to um, to radio reporting. Now, you are, you are basically the person that sort of got together, I guess, the national producers of NPR with, with Joan Kroc? I introduced her to Kevin Close and yeah. Ken Stern and Barbara Hall, yes. They came out from Washington, D.C., and we uh-huh. had breakfast with her at Rancho Valencia. Can you tell us a bit about her? Um, she was, the, of course, the widow of, of Ray Kroc, famously built the McDonald's empire, and Ray was somewhat of a conservative supporter of Richard Nixon, as I recall. Yes. Um, but Joan was an independent thinker, and, well, she was from Minnesota, and I'm from Minnesota, and so we have that in common. And she had a very tough time growing up. Her father had lost his job during the Depression, so I think she always understood what it was like to be without money and to um, to struggle. So... She had a deep affinity with people who had um, terrible times and things to overcome and understood what that was like and um, brought that to all of her giving, all of her philanthropy. One of the biggest things she did in San Diego, of course, was funding the uh, Croc Salvation Army uh, Recreation Center. I mean, that's not the exact name of it, but anyway, this fabulous, fabulous recreation center over in a... Um, near San Diego State, as a matter of fact, and she gave the Salvation $100 million to, to do that. Wow. It was extraordinary. And I guess, too, she's been involved with the University of San Diego, a rather small school, but she wanted to endow them with a peace, uh, peace center. And Justice Center, which is one of the most beautiful p- buildings you've ever seen. There's an incredible reflecting pound out and back and with the most amazing view of the city. So when you go over there, you really feel her spirit. I mean, it's incredible. Well, it must be great for all the KPBS PBS have to know that you guys have really helped bring together this, this philanthropic effort to help the whole national radio situation. 
Well, it's a thrill of a lifetime when you've had a passion. I've worked for KPBS for over 20 years. To see this happen, it's the most extraordinary thing you could ever be involved in. You can't imagine. It's, it's, it's a Horatio Alger story that's real. It really is. It really is. I, I think the main thing that people should understand is this. If you were to know her, she was a real human being, and she wasn't that different from, uh, from any of us, really, except that she was given this incredible resource to work with. And fortunately, she understood public radio, and she appreciated it and knew the power of it, understood the power of it. So I think that's where the affinity came in. Well, I think it's going to do some wonderful things. I think there's optimism everywhere that I've talked to people in radio or just think this, could, this, uh, this endowment could do, to do wonders. So on behalf of everyone else in radio, uh, thank you for what you've done to, bring, to make this all happen. Well, you're welcome. Obviously, you're welcome. <laughs> what more can I say? It's the greatest thing I'll ever do in my life. Years from now, this is going to be reverberating and doing, doing a world of good. I know, and touching the lives of so many people. Yeah. It was interesting. When I was in Washington, D.C., and I would get in cabs and go over back and forth to NPR in my hotel, uh-huh. all of the uh, African-American, um, Ethiopian uh, cab drivers were listening to NPR. It was unbelievable. Well, as well they should be. As they well should be. Yeah. But when you think about it, the broad range of people at NPR and PBS touch, it's extraordinary. Well, I think if you were an Ethiopian cab driver, you would naturally gravitate toward the kind of news that, that you're going to get through you know, BBC, and, and, and which is on a lot of NPR affiliates, and, and just because the coverage is so much better. Exactly. Well, Stephanie Bergsman, thanks so much for talking with us. and uh, Thanks. Have yeah. a happy holiday. You too. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye. Joining us now for a local and, in fact, national perspective on this event is Michael Lazar, president and general manager of Capital Public Radio here in Sacramento, where he's been since 1996. Capital Public Radio is an independent, community-based organization, and it manages five public radio stations under contract with their licensees, four for California State University, Sacramento, and one for the University of the Pacific in Stockton. If you've been listening locally to uh, National Public Radio, and we hope that you have been, you've probably heard the efforts of Mr. Lazar's stations through KXPR, KXJZ, KXSR, KKTO in Tahoe, or in Stockton via KUOP. Mr. Lazar knows about local and national radio. He spent uh, many years working as the production and operations manager at KXCV in Missouri, where he produced over 75 pieces for NPR's All Things Considered. Michael Lazar, thanks for joining Radio Parallax. No problem. Uh, now, perhaps we want to tell a little bit about the, how this really works, how Capital Public Radio and other radio stations are affiliated with NPR. NPR is both a representation organization and a program supplier. They represent us before Congress and the FCC and do a lot of regulatory work, but they're also the largest producer of public radio programs. So programs like Morning Edition and All Things Considered are produced by National Public Radio, and then we purchase them from them. What was the reaction at NPR? And I assume you're privy to that when this news came down about Miss Croc's uh, fabulous donation. Oh, it was uh, an unbelievable feeling. You often hear about other bequests and other organizations that benefit from, from gifts, but you never think it happens to you or somebody you know. And here we were right in the middle of one of the largest gifts ever given to a nonprofit organization. So we were thrilled. Yeah, my understanding is this is the largest donation ever to a charitable institution. It, uh, NPR believes it's the largest gift to an American cultural institution. I don't think they've been able to verify that, but they believe it to be true. 
What's the thought on how this is going to impact the national public radio and local affiliates? Well, fortunately, we have some time to develop that. Uh, there won't be any money coming through for about six months, so that will give us a chance to really discuss it within the system. One thing that the public radio system has never been shy about is expressing its view. We have uh, what we sometimes refer to as ro- robust discussion, and uh, there are many different stations that have different ideas on how the money should be spent. The important thing to remember is that the actual principle probably will, will not be used. There'll be between 200 and $230 million that will largely sit in endowment funds and generate interest. We expect that it'll generate 10 to $12 million of interest per year. So that's roughly 10% of NPR's current budget of $100 million. That money could be used for research and development of new programs. It could be used to offset bad financial times. It could be used to reduce the fees that stations pay for programs. So there are a lot of options on the table that we'll be discussing over the next few months. There was uh, some mention of concern over the fact that, uh, of course, um, National Public Radio and local affiliates depend on a lot of fundraising, and that there was some thought that this large donation might actually uh, decrease donations from other people. Is that, is that a concern? Well, we, we hope it, it won't. It's certainly a concern. Uh, uh, the, the individual listeners need to understand that this is not a gift to the local member stations, that this is a gift to National Public Radio and will be used to offset some cost, but by the time you divide it up among the hundreds of stations, the impact per station is not going to be significant. A lot of the cost that we raise money for is our own local programming and the infrastructure of keeping the stations on the air. So there's very little day-to-day impact that a gift of that magnitude will give. So we still depend heavily on, uh, on the generosity of our individual listeners. And speaking of that, uh, how, how can someone donate to Capital Public Radio? Well, they can uh, either go online to capradio.org and make their uh, contribution on our secure server, or they can call the station and uh, make their contribution. We have a toll-free number, uh, 877-480-5900, that gets people into the station, and they can make their contribution that way. Well, Michael Lazar, President and General Manager of Capital Public Radio, thanks for joining us on Radio Parallax. You're very welcome. You're listening to KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. I'm Douglas Everett, and this is Radio Parallax.